Please turn with me to John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then skip ahead to verse number 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And now, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, We do ask that you would help us to understand this text, that we would see how magnificent of a thing it is that the Word became flesh. Open the eyes of our heart to this truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this sermon is going to be a bit shorter as we spend more time this evening singing praises with one another about the glorious incarnation of our Savior. So our focus this morning, or this evening rather, is on the 14th verse, and we're going to look specifically at the first part. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you just sit there and contemplate those words, you you can't really wrap your mind around them fully. I mean, somebody could spend their entire life trying to work through all of the implications and all of the, the meanings of the Word became flesh. And after devoting an entire lifetime to studying that, we would never fully grasp all of the details and all of the implications. This evening, I want to make several observations about this text that will help us to understand why the incarnation is so significant. Now, what do I mean by incarnation? Perhaps you have heard that word many times, especially around Christmas, but but what does this word actually mean? One theological dictionary defines it this way. The incarnation is the historic Christian doctrine that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal second person of the Trinity, that he was in time taking upon himself a complete human nature by being born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's so much theology just right there. So when we celebrate the the birth of Christ, we, we are actually celebrating the incarnation. Because this baby that was born in Bethlehem was God becoming flesh. Let us look at our text. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So first of all, who is the Word? 
This sounds like very strange language. The Word became flesh. Who is this referring to? Well, to answer this question, we need to go back to verse number 1. In the beginning, the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So first of all, what does Word in this text mean? In the Greek, the word logos is used. This is where we get the English word logic, and it's often translated into English as word. And this word is used to, to speak of Jesus. MacArthur notes that the concept of the word logos is one imbued with meaning for, for both Jews and Greeks. So, so John knows what he's doing here when he writes this. He uses the word logos in a way that would speak significantly to both Jews and to Greeks. So how would the Greeks understand this word? And MacArthur notes to the Greek philosophers, the logos was the impersonal, abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. It was in some sense a creative force and also the source of wisdom. So, so they understood the word logos to, to be some kind of impersonal force that ordered the universe. MacArthur goes on, to the Greeks then, John presented Jesus as the personification and embodiment of the logos. Unlike the Greek concept, however, Jesus was not an impersonal source, force, principle, or emanation. So John is presenting Jesus to the Greeks as the creative force, the logos that orders the entire universe. But how would this word have been understood by the Jews? Once again, MacArthur notes, the word of the Lord was also a significant theme well known to the Jews. That the word of the Lord was the expression of divine power and wisdom. By his word, God introduced the Abrahamic covenant. He gave Israel the Ten Commandments. His word was, was the agent of creation. He spoke, and it was. And it revealed scripture to the prophets. In summary, John presented Jesus to his Jewish readers as the incarnation of divine power, and revelation. So this is what is meant by Logos, the Word. Divine power and revelation. This means that Jesus is God. The Word is God. Watch what John does here. John says, in the beginning was the Word. Now here he is borrowing from the language of Genesis, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning means that this person is eternal. He, he existed before creation was created. That this is an eternal, infinite person. This means that the Word is God. He's eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. And then John gives us more details. And the Word was with God. Now, this is interesting because if the word indicates divine power and revelation, why would John say the word was with God? This is like saying that the divine power and revelation was with 
God. This is like saying God was with God. He's speaking as though there are two distinct persons. Now, now watch what he does. He continues in verse 1, and the word was God. So how can this word be the divine power and revelation of God, be spoken of as being with God, indicating distinctiveness, and yet spoken of as God all at the exact same time? This is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. God is both three and one, having three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and yet one in essence. And this doctrine can get really complicated, so we will leave it at that. God is one in essence and three in person. So there is only one true God, but this one God is three distinct persons. So what we see in our text is that the word refers to the second person of the Trinity, who is God, the Son. So what John is saying is that in the beginning was God, the Son, and God, the Son was with the Godhead and God, the Son was God. So now understanding that the word refers to the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Let us go back to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This means that God the Son, who existed for all eternity, through whom all things were made that were made, this self-same, very same God became flesh. And once again, this is what we call the incarnation. But secondly, how did God become flesh? How, how did this happen? Well, to answer this question, we go to, to Luke chapter 1, where, where an angel visits a young virgin named Mary. And he says to her, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary is a very logical person. So she asked a logical question, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her to, to let her know that this birth, this conception would be divine in nature. So the angel answers her and says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, placed the child in the womb of this woman, Mary, and being born of this child, he was fully human. Being, being born of this woman, he was fully human. But being conceived of the Holy Spirit, and not a man, he was 100% God. Think of that. He's 100% human and 100% God. In our world, that doesn't make sense. That's 200%. You can't be 200% of anything. But yet, he's fully God 
and fully man. The Word became flesh. And this is the, the miraculous, glorious event that we celebrate at Christmas. God becoming flesh, being born of a woman. And so thirdly, why did God do this? Why would the, the, the God of creation become one of his own creatures? What was the purpose of this? Well, we find this answer in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel visited Joseph to, to, to tell him about Mary's miraculous pregnancy. The angel said to Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is why the Word became flesh, to save his people from their sins. And perhaps we ask, well, was this really necessary? Could God not save his people from, from their sins in some other way? Why do we celebrate this as Christians? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that God became flesh? Why didn't he just excuse our sins and, and pardon them? The reality is that the only way for man to be saved from his sins was to have an adequate substitute pay for his sins. This substitute had to be fully God and fully man. Why? God told mankind in the garden, if you sin, you die. The wages of sin is death. This means that in order for Jesus to, to pay for our sins, he had to be fully man because it was man who was guilty before God. Man's blood had to be shed. He had to be a man. The sacrifice had to be a man. But being a man was not enough. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, he committed cosmic treason. He, he sinned against an infinite God. He broke an infinite law. How, how then could a, a mere man pay such a debt for one person, let, let alone for perhaps millions or even more? But what man is worth so much that he can atone for his own sins by his death and the sins of, of many others as well? No man is worth that. Finite man could never pay such an infinite debt. Therefore, the Savior had to be God. Only God could satisfy such an infinite debt. Only God could satisfy a debt against himself, a, a debt against his holy law. So the only way for us to truly be saved was for God the Son to become flesh, to become a man and live as a man in perfect obedience to the law and die as a man in our place while at the same time being fully God in order to have the value, the worth to satisfy such a debt. So God became flesh for us. Because it was the only way to save us. I mean, wrap your mind around that. God said, you sin and you die. 
and man sins anyways. And then God takes on this human flesh to live a perfect life and die in the place of those whom he had already warned that they would die if they sinned. We should not take this lightly. For God, the creator of all things, to take upon himself human flesh for our benefit should leave us speechless. Just consider the, the humility of Christ in doing this. It was absolutely abasing for, for the God of creation to be carried in the womb of a woman. For, for, for God the Son to come into this world as a helpless baby who couldn't even survive without his mother carrying him around and, and nursing him and, and burping him. Can you imagine the, the humiliation there? The, the, the God of creation would, would do this, put himself into the womb of a woman and be, be, be totally dependent upon a human, one of his own creatures for care. Thomas Watson put it this way. Oh, how did Christ abase himself in taking flesh? It, it was more humility in Christ to humble himself to the womb then to the cross. Have you ever thought about that? He says it was more humility in Christ to humble himself to the womb than to the cross. He goes on to say, it was not so much for flesh to suffer, but for God to be made flesh. This was the wonder of humility. Well, once he was human, he would have to suffer. He, he was totally human. All humans suffer. But, but for him to, to take himself, the, the, the divine being totally self-existent, eternal, and become weak flesh that would rot away and die is absolutely astounding. Christ abased himself in that way for you and I. And we often think of the, the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross, which was the ultimate sacrifice. But, but how often do we reflect upon the sacrifice Christ made in taking upon himself human flesh? That's what drove those hymn writers to write those hymns about the incarnation. They are in wonder and, and in awe that, that, that God would become flesh. Paul understood the humility it took for Christ to do this. So he wrote in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the, in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was equal with God. He was God. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Paul understood that Christ displayed humility not only by going to the cross, but by coming in the likeness of men. And he did this for you and I, dear saints. William Dyer put it this way, that the Son of God became man, that we, the sons of men, may become the sons of God. This display of God's love and care for us should, should leave us in, in complete adoration 
of Him. And this display of, of Jesus' humility and, and taking human flesh should cause us to be the humblest people on earth. What did Paul say? What was Paul's application? What was Paul's application of the incarnation? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself in becoming a man. What was the mentality of Christ in taking on human flesh, abasing himself in that way? It was absolute humility. And Paul said, let that mind which was in Christ be in you. This humility displayed by Jesus and coming in the likeness of men is the humility that you and I must have. Willing to even abase ourselves for others. There's no place for pride in the Christian life. Paul says this, the, the, the incarnation should teach us Humility. May the remembrance of our Lord's incarnation move us to, to absolute gratitude. And may this move us to, to praise and adoration for, for the God who will become flesh for you and I. And may this move us to humility as we follow our Lord who showed the greatest amount of humility ever displayed in becoming man for you and I. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are so often filled with pride, and yet we, we can't even comprehend the, the amount of humility it would take for, for God to become flesh. We can't imagine. And yet, this is our example, according to Paul, that this mind which was in Christ should also be in us, that we would serve others and put others before ourselves, that we would walk humbly. Father, help us to praise you the way we ought, to, the, to adore you the way we ought, considering what has been done for us. That not only did Christ go to the cross for our sins, but he became flesh for our sins so that he could go to the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.